Welcome back, Culture by Design listeners. It's Freddie, one of the producers of the podcast. In today's episode, we're continuing our Leading with Character and Competence series with a discussion on the third cornerstone of competence, judgment. Previous episodes in this series have been on the four cornerstones of character, which are integrity, humility, accountability, and courage. If you are just joining us in this series, you can start here, but there's plenty to go back and listen to. Today, Tim and Junior will share practical frameworks to help you improve your judgment and your system's thinking. We live in a complex world full of information and interconnected systems that play together. Judgment has never been more difficult than it is today. If you'd like to improve your judgment and make better decisions every day, then this episode is for you. As always, links to this episode's show notes can be found at leaderfactor.com forward slash podcast. Enjoy today's episode, the third cornerstone of competence, judgment. Welcome back, everyone, to Culture by Design. I'm Junior. I'm here with Dr. Tim Clark, and today we'll be discussing the third cornerstone of competence, judgment. Tim, how you doing? Doing great, thanks. How you doing? Doing excellent. Excited for today's episode. I think it's going to be a good one. It's our penultimate episode in this series. We've got just one more that we'll be recording shortly, which will be the end of this series. I'm a little bit sad, even though we're two episodes out. This has been a really enjoyable few episodes for me. It has been a great series. Peter Drucker said, a decision is a judgment. It is a choice between alternative. It is rarely a choice between right and wrong. It is at best a choice between almost right and probably wrong, but much more often a choice between two courses of action, neither of which is probably more nearly right than the other. Tim, what do you think about that one? Uh, I think that that helps us understand how hard judgment is. And so let's just talk about that for a minute, Junior, because we all get paid to do something, right? In organizations, if we have a job, we get paid and we get paid to make widgets of one kind or another. We all do. Some people make physical widgets. Some people make intangible widgets. And that's kind of what leaders and managers do. So if you think about it, what kind of widgets do leaders make? If they're not on the assembly line, if they're not in production, if they're not actually making something tangible, what are they making? Well, they're making decisions. That's the widget. So decisions are the primary outcome of a leader. And where do those come from? Well, they come out of a process that we call judgment. So judgment is a process. But we're going to talk about that. And the reason we're going to talk about it it is because it's a bit of a black box. To render judgment and do a good job, to have good judgment, requires a combination of attributes. There's a few things that go into the mix here, such as knowledge and experience and skill and vision and character and maybe a few other things. And so it's hard to pin down. There's no formula, there's no tonic, there's no algorithm that can exercise judgment for you or for me. And so that helps us understand how difficult it is. And yet you could make the argument that we get paid for judgment more than any other thing. But it's a very, very difficult skill or attribute to develop. So that's my kind of preamble on this subject, Junior. It's really difficult, and yet it's so vital to any organization. As I've been thinking about this episode in preparation, I think it's safe to say for me personally that judgment 
is one of those attributes that I aspire most to have. If I could be known for one thing as a leader, it would probably be this, good judgment. I value that tremendously because I've seen just how important it's been in my life, both personally and professionally, when I've been the beneficiary of good judgment, when I've been the victim of poor judgment, either by myself or other people. So I think that this episode is particularly important. We're going to be framing judgment, defining it as much as we can, and then going into some practical ways that we can improve our judgment because it is a learnable skill. So let's start off with a story about judgment. Before we do that, let me make a couple of comments here. One is that it's a kind of a diagnostic question that I think all the listeners can ask of themselves. Here's the question. Would people say about you, you are a good decision maker? Would they say that? That person is a good decision maker. If someone can say that about you, what they are saying in essence is that you have good judgment. So reflect on that. Is that your reputation? Is that how you are known? Is that what people think about you? So think about that question. It's a very important diagnostic question. And at the same time, just right out of the chute, Junior, I want to give a definition of judgment. And this is my favorite definition of judgment. Judgment is about interpreting what is not yet obvious. This is what judgment is all about. All about. If something passes the test of obviousness, we don't need judgment anymore because it's clear to everyone what we need to do. It is obvious. Judgment happens before that obviousness occurs, right? So it's about interpreting what is not yet obvious and then making a decision, taking a course of action, figuring out what we need to do. This is what judgment is all about. So as we go through the rest of this discussion, I hope that listeners will ponder that definition. This is where judgment, this is when judgment is needed the most. It's not obvious what we need to do. Okay, let's apply judgment. So any decision that involves judgment is made short of certainty. I love it. So here's the story. In 1952, a group of renowned scientists gathered at MIT for what would become known as the Summer Study Group. In the background, Cold War tensions were escalating between the United States and the Soviet Union. What concerned national security experts most was the possibility that Moscow could dispatch long-range bombers, planes, armed with nuclear warheads and send them over the polar region undetected. So in response to this threat, the U.S. government commissioned its scientists to make a detailed study of North American vulnerability to such an attack. This included Canada. Out of the deliberations came an urgent recommendation to build a distant early warning system, what became known as the Dew Line, consisting of state-of-the-art radar stations arrayed across the Arctic Circle. So think about the logistics, even though we're just this far. Under the guidance of a bilateral agreement, the U.S. and Canadian governments joined forces and commenced the project. After less than three years of construction, an integrated chain of 63 radar stations dotted the landscape 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle and stretched 3,000 miles from Alaska to Canada's Baffin Island. 
So this dew line represented at the time the world's most advanced detection system, an engineering and logistical marvel and the cornerstone of North American air defense. Sounds like a pretty amazing story. Here's the irony. The dew line that stretched, as I mentioned, 3,000 miles was rendered obsolete almost as soon as it was built. So the project was commissioned in July of 1957, and the very next month, Soviet scientists pulled off a game-changing move. They successfully test-fired the R-7, the world's first ICBM, intercontinental ballistic missile. And it would take only two more years while they're building this for the Soviets to deploy a military ICBM allowing them to launch a nuclear attack from their home turf. So originally we were concerned with big bombers carrying nuclear warheads. Now we have these ICBMs, which are missiles themselves that can be launched across continents. So with amazing speed, these new realities, these new discoveries had thwarted the much vaunted new intelligence gathering capability of the United States and Canada. So, so much for the do line. So, Tim, why this story? Why do you think that this is relevant here? Well, we go back to the 1950s, and this is probably a story that many people don't even know about. It's a chapter in history, but it helps us understand if things were that dynamic in the 1950s with the development of technology and competitive forces, what are they like today? It illustrates how fast things move, how fast things develop. and uh, the fact that even with our best judgment in a given moment or for a given season of time, there are unexpected developments that are going to happen. So it shows us the unprecedented need for judgment in a highly dynamic environment where we have an interplay of many, many variables. I mean, this is pretty incredible. Right, We spent three years putting these stations in place and then finally commissioning the dew line in 1957. And what did you say? The next month, it's rendered obsolete? The next month. This is the 1950s, right? Yeah. So I think it's a, an incredible case study to help us understand the dynamic nature of the environments in which we are working and leading. Well, and not to spend too much time on national security, but I think that it's interesting because at the time we're primarily concerned with physical security, right? And that due line was rendered obsolete a month later. Now, are we more concerned about digital security and how much more dynamic is that environment? And so I think that that's an interesting angle or list interesting lens to look through is the dynamism of the physical environment was such 60, 70 years ago. And now look what it is, not only physically, but digitally. So the do line, was this good judgment? Was this poor judgment? I don't know. We'll leave it to you to think about. But there are a few questions that could have been and maybe were asked. I don't know the details of this story, which is why I can't render a judgment, but they could have asked what would have to be true in order for this dew line to not work. Well, maybe we assume that those nuclear warheads are not carried by plane. What if they're self-propelled? Well, then that would render the whole thing obsolete. It 
stands to reason that if a month later they were able to create that ICBM, that there was sufficient technology to warrant the idea, right? And so it stands to reason to me, and again, I'm not in the room, that we could have thought about this a little more critically and thought, you know what, if they just were able to do that one thing, that's right, this all would go away and be irrelevant. And so maybe we would have approached it from a slightly different angle. Again, I'm completely ignorant to a lot of this story, but I think it's an interesting question. So in order to compete in today's world, in order to survive in today's world, not even compete, we need good judgment. So what is judgment? Let's go to a few more definitions. Tim touched on just a couple. Google says the ability to make considered decisions or come to sensible conclusions. In the book, you mentioned sifting, sorting, filtering, and connecting information, logic, values, and objectives, thinking through different courses of action and their consequences. So as I've thought about judgment, there's this future element of judgment. It's not just now. It's in the future. It might be a day from now. It might be a year from now, all of which comes with uncertainty, different degrees of uncertainty. And your ability to predict is also a component of judgment that I think is really interesting that we'll touch on toward the end of the episode. But those are some angles that we can look at judgment. So what affects our judgment? A few things, logic, values plays into judgment, objectives, experience, consequences, the information we have available to us. So the fact that values is in here is interesting to me. So judgment is not just amoral, is it, Tim? No, it's not. You have to be guided by values and a moral position, right? Otherwise, you don't have a rudder. You're rudderless as you're making the the decision. And it's simply, then your decision becomes to maximize utility, whatever that may be but you're not guided in the way that you do it. And so there's a moral component always. I think this is an important point because to me, it seems implicit when we talk about judgment. That's often what we mean, that it is guided by moral principles. But without that, it's almost impossible then to have good judgment if it's not guided by some principle, as you say. So judgment and systems thinking, there's a relationship here that I think is important. So what is systems thinking? It's making sense of the complexity of the world by looking at it in terms of holes and relationships, variables that interact with each other, rather than splitting it down into its parts. Why? Why, Tim, is systems thinking crucial when it comes to judgment? Well, as you say, Junior, you're trying to optimize for the overall objective. And if you don't take the whole into account, if you don't get up into your hot air balloon and look at the big picture, you'll miss some things and then you'll end up sub-optimizing the whole and optimizing some part of the whole. So you can see how dangerous it is if you're not bringing everything into the equation for analysis. It's very dangerous. Also, let me add one more thing. Let's go back to values. As a leader, you have to be very careful that you don't thrust yourself into the equation, into the picture through self-serving motives, right? Because if you do that, if you're not able to restrain your own self-interest and your own selfishness, quite frankly, 
then what that does is it impairs your judgment. It skews the data. It contaminates the analysis. That's what happens. So you have to be an honest broker on the outside. You're trying to make the best decision possible and you're taking your own interest out of it. That's extremely important as you do this. So judgment and systems thinking, one of the veins that I think we can go down is that if you don't use systems thinking, it means that you need to understand every single one of those component parts. And is that possible? No, it's not possible. There are too many variables to consider. And here's another angle to look at this. It could be that you have a batting average that's better than someone else, but you make fewer decisions. Let's talk about that for a second. At some point, the volume of decisions that you make becomes important. Now, if you make 90% good decisions, but you only make one a week, is that better or worse than someone who's consistently making more good decisions, even though their hit rate's a little bit lower? Now, we can't speak in absolutes, but I just wanted to bring that up because there can be a tendency, I think, for people to look at it this way. I need good judgment. Therefore, I need good information. Therefore, I'm going to spend exorbitant amounts of time gathering all of the relevant information so that I can have the highest chance of making a good decision. And then enter analysis paralysis. And analysis paralysis is not good judgment even though you may come to a good outcome. Maybe it takes too long or you did it at the expense of too many other things. And so there's this really dynamic interplay across all of these variables and demands. I think that that's part of what makes judgment so difficult. Just this week, for me, there are several things on my plate that I'm trying to prioritize. And part of the judgment is deliberately making a less than best decision on one of those items. Because I know that if I could give time to it, I could make a better decision. So isn't that interesting that sometimes it's deliberately taking time away from something because when we're thinking at a systems level, we can see that, hey, this thing over here deserves a little bit more attention. That's true, Junior. When we apply judgment, it's normally under uh, conditions where there are constraints, there are deadlines, there's limited information. There's limited resources. We're not in some simulation where we can analyze things forever and we can keep gathering information. That's just not how it works. So judgment is, it happens under these pressurized conditions and limited resources. This is how it works. And this is where we have to learn how to develop better judgment. So one of the things that I like to say is that you can't read yourself into developing better judgment. I mean, you can inform yourself with more information, more knowledge, and that is helpful. But in many ways, the only way that you develop better judgment is through doing. Let me give you an example. So I have learned, this is a matter of judgment, I have learned to discount the assumptions of other people, the assumptions they make about what it takes to do things, to get a project done. Can you relate to this, Junior? <laughs> yes, sir. So I've learned to discount. <laughs> if they say it's going to cost this much, I'm going to add at least 50% off times. If they say it's going to take this much time, 
I'm going to maybe double that. I'm going to analyze that very carefully and I'm going to discount their assumptions pretty heavily because of the inherent biases that humans have to not be accurate in trying to scope out a project in terms of what it's going to take. And I've learned this over and over and over and over the hard way. And I don't know how else I would have learned that. That's a matter of judgment. So that's one thing. Second, I've become more measured and not as emotional and getting excited about the dream outcomes that we may be talking about, the, the aspiration, the goal, what we're shooting for. Not that I'm not excited about accomplishing great things, but I've learned to be more measured about that because there's a susceptibility in humans to embrace the first order intended consequence of a decision and then not look at the potential unintended consequences, not look at them carefully enough. And so to quote a a moral philosopher and historian that I love, her name is Gertrude Himmelfarb. She said, nothing is as seductive as the assurance of success. Nothing is as seductive as the assurance of success. But what is reality tutors you to be careful, to be more measured, to be less emotional, to discount assumptions. So that's what you learn through experience. You learn that through self-discovery. It's very interesting. So the irony is that much of what you learn about judgment, you learn through often failed attempts, through problems, through mistakes, through poor decisions. You have a lot of repetitions. You have a lot of at-bats. And hopefully you're paying attention and you're doing a very careful post-mortem after you make a decision and you see the consequences, not only first order, but second order and third order. And sometimes it takes time before you can see what's happened, right? You need some longitudinal data, but those things are so helpful. And I don't know how you acquire that judgment other than much of it through experience. So in addition to systems thinking, let's add an element searchlight intelligence. Harvard psychologist Howard Gardner argues that leaders need synthesizing minds that seek connections among fragments of knowledge. The challenge is that this need for searchlight intelligence, as he terms it, is not enough given the sheer volume of information that has to be filtered, synthesized, and made actionable. So this has several implications, and we can go into them at another point. There's a quote that I really like, Warren Bennis and his colleague, they claim that leadership is, quote, the chronicle of judgment calls. So, again, affirming evidence that this is part and parcel of leadership. This is what it is, judgment calls and decision making. So, here's what complicates things, and we've already borne this out. There's more information today than there ever has been, which makes judgment more difficult than it's ever been. Why? Because judgment happens based on the information available to you. And if there's a lot of information, there's a lot of things to consider. So judgment isn't easy, yet it's absolutely critical. It's arguably the most difficult and yet most important thing that we do. I'll add a couple of points to that, Junior. First, decisions 
are only as good as the intelligence that informs them. Think about that. You're going to rely on the intelligence that you have, the information that you have. At the same time, and you said this earlier, we make all business decisions. In fact, all decisions in life somewhere short of certainty. So you're never going to have perfect information. The assumption is that you're going to have to render a judgment and make a decision with partial information, always. That's what it comes down to. Now, but what's changed? Well, what's changed is the environment in which we are exercising judgment and making decisions today. It's more difficult today because we have a complex interplay of variables, a highly dynamic environment. This fact alone tells us that judgment must be a collaborative process as well. You can't rely on yourself. You don't have the equipment. You don't have the analytical power. You don't have the processing power to be able to synthesize everything, to be able to see issue from every angle. So you're going to need some help, right? I think a great illustration of this, Junior, is that take the economy, take the macro economy, the best minds in the world, the best economists in the world cannot predict economic activity. They cannot predict inflation. They cannot predict unemployment. They cannot predict these vital economic indicators. They try and they build models and they forecast and they make judgments and they gather information and sometimes they get it right, but no one gets it consistently right. No one. Why is that? Because there's just too many variables interacting in too many ways. And at some point, we lose our predictive power. We have a lot of explanatory power after something happens, but we don't have very much predictive power going into the future. And so we have to realize the constraints under which we do analyze and make judgments. And that's where judgment lives, is in the future. It does. It does. Let's talk about some tools that we can use. We're going to go through a few today. We're not going to go in depth in all of them. If you want to go into more detail, we'll put a link in the show notes, the book. We'll go briefly over the VICTOR model. It's an acronym, V-C-T-R, VICTOR. Value, cost, time, and risk. The first time I saw this, I thought, you know what? That's pretty elementary. There's nothing very groundbreaking about this model. Like, of course, you need to do those things. But it is amazing to me the amount of poor decisions that could have not been poor, had they gone through this model, and just the confidence that you can have in what you believe is a good decision by going through this and making sure. So value, cost, time, and risk. We won't go into each of those, but that's the Victor model. The next one I want to spend a little bit more time on. Tim, before we move on, anything on the Victor model you want to say? Well, just to acknowledge that, what are we talking about? We're talking about four decision-making criteria that should always be a part of your analysis if you're making a decision. You should always be taking into account these four factors. What is the potential value if we do this? What is the cost? What are the time requirements? What are the risks? So that's a fundamental discipline for decision-making. But as you say, Junior, so often 
we do not adequately address these four decision-making criteria. I saw a decision not long ago that had three of these, not the fourth. It had value, cost, and risk, did not have time. And time was a very important piece of this decision. And it would just showed me once more that all four of those are a part of the process every time. And you got to account for them. So next, we're going to talk about adaptive challenges. And so much of becoming or developing good judgment is becoming skilled and fast at identifying adaptive challenges. Here are the categories, opportunity, threat, and crisis. An opportunity is a potential benefit, a threat is a potential harm, and a crisis is certain harm. So in addition to the Victor model, this is another way to help us think through decisions. And the more ways that we can look at this, the better. I was formally trained in strategy, in management strategy or business strategy. And really what business strategy is, is learning a whole host of models and then figuring out when to apply those models to give a certain problem, a certain situation, a greater degree of definition to look at it the right way. And so you'll often hear me say words like angle or lens or frame because the way that we look at things, the lens through which we look, the angle from which we look are so important in providing that type of definition. I love the story. It's not even a story, but Eskimos have like nine words for snow. Why? Because differentiation is useful. And intelligence in so many respects is our ability to make finer and finer differentiations among variables or in a given situation. And so it's helpful. Okay, this thing's in front of me. What is it? Is it an opportunity? Is it a threat? Or is it a crisis? And depending on which one of those it is, will inform my behavior. It will inform my urgency. It will inform my sense of import. It will inform my sense of collaboration. Is this going to be a consultative decision? Is this going to be a unilateral decision because we need to move? All of those things will be affected by just this basic overlay of adaptive challenge. No, I agree, Junior. The first thing that we have to do is, well, first of all, we're in the business of responding to adaptive challenges. This is what we do for a living. But as you say, the first thing that we have to do is when an adaptive challenge appears, we have to interpret that. What is it that we are dealing with? What is arriving here? Is it an opportunity or a threat or a crisis? And just that classification at the front end will help us begin to formulate our response strategy, our response pattern. So interpretation is crucial up front, right? What are we dealing with? And I think that's where this framework comes in handy. Let's go a level deeper and talk about five factors as they relate to these adaptive challenges. The first is clarity. How clear is the adaptive challenge you're responding to? The second is urgency. At what level of urgency must the organization respond? Three is the response time. How much time do you have to respond? Four is available options. What options are available to you to respond? And five is margin for error. What is the margin for error with this particular adaptive challenge? Is it very low or is it very high? 
Is it something that I need to take care of right now? Is it something that I can push off till tomorrow? I think that part of what makes this valuable is applying these in retrospect. When we do a postmortem, we can look at the decision that we made, then go back and measure it against these. Did I have clarity? Did I respond with the appropriate level of urgency? Did I give appropriate response time? Did I accurately see my available options? And did I account for the margin of error in the decision? Did I make the right decision given those things? If you don't use that as a frame, then what do you do? You ask this really amorphous question, which is, was that the right decision? If there's no further differentiation, if you don't unpack it and apply a frame, it becomes really difficult to coach yourself. Really, really difficult. Well, you just need to play better next time. Okay, well, that's not helpful. No, it's not. What about, you know, we got to get some differentiation, right? Well, Junior, let's take a couple of examples. Okay, so those five questions represent a filter through which to take an adaptive challenge to figure out what it is. So let's just take an example. So here comes an adaptive challenge. It's coming our way. And we're going to ask these five questions. So let's say the clarity is low. The urgency is low. The response time is high. We have lots of time to respond. Available options, we've got lots of different options. And the margin for error looks to be low. Okay, what is that? Do you see the profile of that? That's an opportunity. Opportunities are not clear. They're foggy. They're far away and foggy. They don't have an inherent level of urgency attached to them. Usually the the urgency level is very, very low because there's something out there in the offing that, okay, you know, we can't even really make it out. So how can we feel this great sense of urgency about it? That doesn't make sense. So the urgency is going to be low. We have time. So response time is high. We've got time on our hands. We could try this. If it doesn't work, we can try something else. If it doesn't work, maybe we try something else. We have options. We've got a a lot of different options in the way that we respond to this. And the margin of error is low, right? So again, we don't just have one bite at the apple. We may have several different opportunities. That's the nature of an opportunity. Okay, now let's go to a crisis. What does a crisis look like? Before we go to crisis, I will say that there are opportunity windows. We use the word window sometimes very purposefully in that there is urgency to an opportunity and the time to respond is short. Maybe it's something that comes across our desk, an opportunity to, who knows, expand a location. We have an opportunity to bid on a property and the bids are done in the next two hours, right? There are occasionally times where there is urgency. But what I would say to that, Junior, is that if it's an opportunity, you may think, you may see that, you may interpret that, but that's probably not obvious to everyone else. And so for you, there's a high sense of urgency. For perhaps most others, it's not. They don't see it that way. They're not interpreting it that way. That's why it's difficult to align an organization behind an opportunity because the inherent level of urgency is typically low, right? That's fair. Now, if we go to a crisis, the profile of a crisis is the opposite. 
Is there clarity? Is there urgency? Yes. The nature of a crisis is that it's at the door or it's leaving tracks on your back. It's either right here or it's it's rolling over you. That's the nature of a crisis. So by definition, clarity is high, urgency is high. All right, well, let's take a look at the other three factors. How about response time? No, you don't have a lot of time. How about options? Your options have diminished. How about margin for error? Your margin for error has gone way up. So do you see the trade-offs that come with these different categories of adaptive challenge? That's why it is vital to be able to accurately interpret the adaptive challenge at the front end. Got to know what we're dealing with. I want to talk for a second about timing because it could be that the same adaptive challenge is any one of those three categories depending on the timing. And so it could be an opportunity that you let pass that becomes a threat, which if you let pass for too long can become a crisis. And so adaptive challenges can move in and out of those categories depending on the timing. So there's a quote from Ted Williams, baseball player, that you put in there. Waiting for the right pitch is the most important thing for a batter. I think that that's interesting. When I first read that, I thought, yeah, okay. But then I thought about it for a long time. And I chewed on it for about a day. Waiting for the right pitch is the most important thing for a batter. What does that mean? It means that I'm not altering the swing necessarily every time a pitch is thrown. I'm just waiting for the right pitch. And it's not just what, but when. And this element of timing, I think, is really important as it pertains to adaptive challenge because we need to make a decision on the urgency front at some point and say we're going to act or not act. And sometimes those trade-offs with action and inaction are very difficult and very expensive. And as you mentioned, we may see them differently depending on where we're sitting in the organization, what information we have access to, what's important to us. And so you see the implications when there are a whole bunch of different people, it just becomes more complex. So Michael Porter says leaders are the guardians of trade-offs. That's your job. So if your job is decision-making, decision-making is an act of trading off. So seeing how these things relate to each other is really interesting to me. Trade-offs, decision-making, judgment, it's this realm of uncertainty and future that is hard. It's hard. There's a lot of a strife that happens when we're acting in this land. Well, Junior, I think you just said it. The defining characteristics for the environment uh, related to judgment are uncertainty and the future. That's what we're dealing with. That's what judgment is all about, is trying to make decisions in an environment of uncertainty for the future. That's why it's hard. There are two main points that we want to make that fall into this solutions category of things that we can do to improve our judgment. This next one I think is particularly important, something that I'm trying to become better at. Surround yourself with talented, strong-minded people. That's the short of it. And we're going to go through a few quotes and examples that I think are pretty compelling. There's a verse in Judges in the Old Testament that I think is amazing to show us that people have been dealing with this for a long time. I don't even know how to say this name. Abimelech? Abimelech. 
Maybe. Yeah. I don't know who that is. Hired vain and light persons which followed him. Part of the reason I think this is interesting is because this is thousands of years ago and we get to read about it and see that this guy, Abimelech, I apologize if I'm getting your name wrong, even though you haven't been here for a few thousand years, hired vain and light persons. Why? Why would you do that? Because vain and light people are easy to put in line. They're easy to get to follow you in some respect. What do you think about that verse? This is such an insight. It's the antithesis of what you just said, Junior. Surround yourself with talented, strong-minded people. And then what did Abimelech do? He hired vain and light persons, which followed him. Well, why did he do that? He was more interested in flattery. He wanted to surround himself with obsequious sycophants, you know, people that will just tell you what you want to hear. Well, that's not going to help you in rendering judgment, in analyzing complex situations and making a good decision. What a waste, right? But yet, do we see leaders doing this today? Absolutely. I was just speaking with an executive about a CEO who had packed the board of directors with friends that would rubber stamp what he wanted to do. Guess what? Here we are several years later after he's been doing that, and the organization is falling apart because the governance is not there, the checks and balances are not there, the accountability is not there, the good judgment's not there, the challenging the status quo and challenging the leader is not there. That's what you get. So because this leader acted out of self-interest, he impaired his own judgment. And over time, things got worse. Now they're falling apart. Now he's sitting down to a banquet of his consequences. Wow, congratulations. This is exactly what he did. He hired vain and light persons. It's not going to help you. Here's a line to follow it up from the little prince. To vain men, other people are admirers. So if you're a vain man, how do you see other people as admirers? What do you do? You go and look for your biggest fans. So if you're the CEO and you're characterized by vanity, then what do you do? You go pack your board with your admirers. Why? Because there's no more friction for you. You can make unilateral decisions, essentially, and do what you want to do. Now, is that in the best interest of the institution? Of course it's not. But we see this happen time and time again. It's a predictable pattern across history. Here's someone who broke the pattern, Abraham Lincoln. So I read the book, Team of Rivals. Tim, you read that book? Probably. I think I read half of it, but I didn't finish it, to be honest. Well, I think that most people who started it didn't finish it because it's a beast. But the point is, he invited his competition into his cabinet. Why would you ever do that? He had to put up with a lot of grief, a lot of grief. But there were clearly at some points during his presidency, some benefits from doing that. And I think just positionally, it's an interesting move. And what does that tell everyone else about you. If you are solely interested in your own devices, in your own interests, you wouldn't do that, period. 
End of story. I can't think of a reasonable way that you would invite your competition in in order to achieve those ends. You really have to be looking for a different point of view. You really have to believe that there's value lurking underneath the competition. And so it wasn't this just really nice story of, you know, we are all friends now and we're going to work together and put our differences behind us. That is not the story. Quite the opposite. They remained in competition, many of them, a few in particular. And I thought that that that's such a compelling story and appropriate uh, when we're talking about the opposite of some of these examples. Well, Junior, he had a hard job to do. He needed the best and brightest minds around him, even if he had to put up with their personal ambition, their egos, the strife between or among them. But he knew he needed that. The job was bigger than he was, and he knew that. Yeah. Here's another one in politics. John W. Gardner, member of Lyndon Johnson's cabinet, said this. Most importantly, perhaps, it includes the capacity to appraise the potentialities of coworkers and opponents. So this isn't speaking of, I think, generally, but in this case, specifically, Lyndon Johnson or the presidency, generally in leadership, what constitutes a good leader. Part of it, it includes the capacity to appraise the potentialities of coworkers and opponents. It means that you have to be a good judgment of talent and a good judgment of character, a good judge of character. If you can do those two things well and put the right people around you, you have a much better chance. And all of this speaks to the fact that if you do this alone, you're not going to go very far. As a leader, if you want good judgment, you can't make decisions in isolation. And that almost goes without saying, but here we are. Machiavelli said, the first method for estimating the intelligence of a ruler is to look at the men he has around him. How about that? That's an interesting quote too. And these are across a period of several thousand years, all of these examples, and they're all saying roughly the same thing. There's a pattern here. There's a pattern. Right. So what we're saying is that to get to good judgment on decisions and issues and courses of action, you need to surround yourself with the very best people. So how do you do that? Well, you're going to learn to do that through experience and you will over time have some regrettable hires, but on the other hand, you will also have some regrettable losses where good people that you wanted to keep, you wanted to retain, they walk out the door. Hopefully you're taking notes, you're paying attention, you're doing everything that you can to increase your ability to judge the capability and the character of those around you. There's a whole section on developing people in the book that I think is worth going into. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it today, but it starts on page 144 if you have the book. It's about affiliation and accountability. It's about delegation, about multiplying force and accelerating the development of those around you. So it's not just about getting the right people around you. It's about doing that and then continuing to develop them. The last thing that we're going to go into is resist the arrogance and overconfidence that can come with success. Warren Buffett observed a fat wallet is the enemy of superior investment results. I'll just add, Junior, to this point that we're making here that we have to resist arrogance and overconfidence. You've got to take yourself out of the equation 
as you're doing analysis and you're trying to exercise judgment. I said this before, but it bears repeating. If self-interest is a big factor, you will skew the data, you will taint the analysis and the entire analysis process. So get out of the way or you may live to regret it. There's a moral component here that we should not underestimate. This is where we walk away, integrity comes in. You can't be so committed to a course of action that you can't move off it and change your mind if new data says you should. So I wanna emphasize that point. So often what we're trying to do is act before circumstances conspire against us. We're trying to stay in an offensive mode of performance instead of a defensive mode of performance. There's a piece of this that I want to go into for a second that I was thinking about just last night. And that's the relationship between humility and judgment. And I think that these two things are highly, highly correlated. So here's how I came to this. Judgment seems to be influenced by your ability to predict the future. What informs your ability to predict the future? It's in my opinion, what I've come to is it's your ability to see the truth of the past. That's all you have. How else could you predict the future? So your ability to see the patterns of the past and extrapolate those into the future, because what has happened in the past will likely happen again in the future because humans are humans. Circumstances change, conditions change, sure, but there are some principles that happen over and over again. So what will the conditions produce this next time around? Well, maybe what they produced the last hundred times. Maybe it's going to be different in the details, but people will probably behave the same way. And so if you're brutally honest in confronting the past and shedding yourself of your own bias, your own interpretation, you'll probably be able to see into the future with greater objectivity, greater pragmatism, greater clarity. So What does this have to do with humility? It's the ability to admit your own ignorance. And what I've seen, especially relative to the surround yourself with talented, strong-minded people whole idea, is that the most dangerous people are those who confidently, but yet ignorantly, march into the future. If you cannot admit your own ignorance and you look at the past through a lens that is not based in reality... It's based on the reality that you've created for yourself, based on this echo chamber you've created of all of these other people saying that, yes, you're right. That's so dangerous. And so our ability to stay humble, to see the truth of the past, to see the truth of the present will affect our ability to see into the future. And I think positively impact our judgment. So that's one last thing I wanted to toss in there that's been floating around in my brain, Tim. I love that. I absolutely love that. It's a great insight. Junior, I worked with an executive early in my career and he would not tolerate dissent. And he made several multi-million dollar capital budget expenditures. And they turned out to be very poor decisions. In fact, disastrous decisions. But the entire process of judgment and analysis that led up to the decision those decisions, that process was not an open, collaborative process where we had the opportunity and ability to challenge the status quo and debate. He shut it down. 
And he did create an echo chamber. And wow, I can't even begin to explain the consequences of those capital budget decisions and the misallocation of capital, which is just one example of where you can go wrong, right? But it goes back to your insight. You have to have the ability to see the truth of the past as objectively as possible. That means you get out of your own way. And it's interesting to me that the judgment or lack of that you talked about affected so many people. And so it's something that we need to be particularly careful with as we increase in influence because our judgment for better or worse affects more people and it has bigger ripples. And so if you see yourself moving up an organization, this is something that you should think long and hard about. And it becomes particularly important as you ascend that hierarchy. Okay, so to summarize, our effectiveness as leaders will largely depend on our ability to make choices, our judgment. Each of us needs to do this. We need to cultivate judgment. How do we do that? Five things. Identify and respond appropriately to adaptive challenges. Two, wait for the right pitch. Three, surround yourself with talented, strong-minded people. Four, develop those people once you've found them. And five, resist the arrogance and overconfidence that can come with success. Tim, any final thoughts? I would just go back to the original definition that I love so much, that judgment, what is it? Judgment is the ability to interpret what is not yet obvious. So if we apply those five steps that you just mentioned, Junior, I think we're going to be better in doing that very thing. I do too. Well, thank you everyone for your time and attention. We appreciate your listenership very much. Stay tuned for next week. We'll be releasing a bonus episode as part of a mini series we're testing out called Single Point Lessons. So that should hit your downloads on Wednesday, if I'm not mistaken. If I am mistaken, I'm sorry. But have a listen and let us know what you think. If you found value in today's conversation, please share it with someone who might find it useful. Take care, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey, Culture by Design listeners, this is the end of today's episode. You can find all the important links from today's episode at leaderfactor.com forward slash podcast. And if you found today's episode helpful and useful in any way, please share with a friend and leave a review. If you'd like to learn more about Leader Factor and what we do, then please visit us at leaderfactor.com. Lastly, if you'd like to give any feedback to the Culture by Design podcast or even request a topic from Tim and Jr., then reach out to us at info at leaderfactor.com or find and tag us on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening and making culture something you do by design, not by default.